Hey, I'm Stephen Hovatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10:15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Good morning. Hope you're doing well today on this, uh, you know, rainy, rainy weekend in February. We've been talking about some of the most, uh, I guess, well-known, beloved stories in Scripture and maybe rethinking them just a little bit to see how if we look closely, we'll find that there's a, a missional twist in each of these stories, something that tells us not just a, a bedtime fable for the people of God, but something that reminds us of who we are called to be. The Exodus is a formative story for the people of God. For the people of God who are uh, in that Jewish identity, uh, and then later on for those of us who are in Christ Jesus from all the nations uh, and know, uh, have, have become part of Israel's story and made that um, part of our own story. The Exodus stands as this pivotal moment in the story of the people of God. And I don't know how you envision it, whether you envision it from the animated scenes of the Prince of Egypt, or if it's Charlton Heston that plays uh, Moses for you. Uh, any Charlton, Charlton Heston fan? We'll see the Charlton Heston people, okay. Prince of Egypt people, let's see the Prince of Egypt. Okay, all right, okay, a little bit even. Uh, there's this tale that's been retold in lots of different ways. From Moses's origin stories at the beginning of, this, of, of the book of Exodus, and the way that he's brought up, and first he's, he's rescued as his mother refuses to fall uh, prey to the, the oppressive hand of the Pharaoh who has enslaved Israel and who is now working to, to have all their young children killed. And Moses is placed into a little ark, and a little play on words there for the, from the Genesis story of Noah, a little ark, a little boat that he floats down the Nile River in. He becomes part of Pharaoh's house. He's adopted into Pharaoh's house. Later on, he rises. He, he try, makes a, a kind of failed attempt as a young man to try to um, rise up against the people that are, uh, the, those Egyptians that are oppressing his people. And the Israelites don't want to have anything to do with it. He runs off as an exile. It's a great origin story for Moses in the way that he rises. And when we finally meet Moses before the Exodus proper, he's just a shepherd. He's just a shepherd out in the wilderness, wandering around. Until he has this moment where he encounters a bush that is burning. Um, and the story tells us, and I don't know how you remember it, if you remember it from the uh, he's calling out first, and then he goes. But the way it happens in the story, it says that um, he says to himself, ah, I should turn aside and look and see what is up with this strange sight. See why this bush is burning but not consumed. Um, which I take to be a parable about how God uh, reacts to curiosity. The army has now waded into... To try to, to try to capture Israel again. The armies of Pharaoh are destroyed. And Israel is definitively free. It's a story of salvation 
and liberation and grace. The story of how God is at work in ways that can meet the needs of his people before they even really knew what was wrong in the first place. There are lots of times, I think, where God hears the cries that we don't even know how to make yet. But here in this story, God hears the cries of his people and he responds with power that they could not summon on their own. The story goes like this too, right? As soon as they emerge from the sea, they make their way towards Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God is going to give them a covenant, and he's going to show them what kind of people he intends for them to be. And it's very important, by the way, that the order goes like this. They don't get the commands while enslaved in Egypt, and then God says, why don't you guys see what you can do about keeping these commands, and then I'll see what I can do about getting you out of here. Their freedom, their salvation, their liberation comes first. God doesn't bring the people out of Egypt because they're so righteous. He doesn't bring them out of Egypt because they are so good or so just. He just brings them out of Egypt because he desires for them to be his. It's a story of extreme grace. We go from Egypt to Sinai and then to the promised land. That's how the story goes. Not the other way around. And no other order really makes sense in the way of God. It's a story about what it meant for God to bring about this great gift that was for his people. And it becomes the fundamental foundation of their identity before God. Not just who they were, but who God was too. If Israel knew anything about God, they would say, He is the one who brought us out of Egypt. He is the one that brought us and saved us, and then anything else you want to say about God comes after that. It was also their fundamental identity for their own selves. We are the ones whom God has chosen and brought out of Egypt. That's who we are. It was a revelation of God's identity, and it was a declaration of Israel's identity, revealing who God was, but also pointing to who Israel was and who they would be. All of that wrapped up in one easily told bedtime story. I want to look a little deeper at that tale, at something that happens through this story that shapes how they are to be the people of God's ongoing mission in the world. If you remember way back, way back in the story, long before we've even gotten to Egypt, in the book of Genesis, there was 
a moment when Father Abraham, who had been called by God to start a new, a, a new force of his people in the world, look in Genesis 18 with me. We're going to look at a couple of places in Scripture tonight, today. <clears throat> you have to follow the bouncing ball a little bit today. Try not to do that too much, but today it's just kind of the way the sauce is made. So in Genesis 18, there is this moment where God, who has promised a son to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah, that would be the first of a great people, God decides to share with Abraham what's going to happen in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham's nephew lives. And we're not going to read the whole part of this where God and Abraham kind of have this bargaining session. Although I do want to show you this one particular thing that God says about Abraham. Read with me in verse 17 and following. So this is Genesis 18 and verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now, right there, these are the promises, right? This is the grace that God has given to Abram, right? The charge of his covenant. I am going to make you a great nation. And the text goes on. No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Well, I've made this promise to Abraham. I'm going to create from him a great and mighty nation. And I'm not going to hide my ways from him because I want him to lead this great nation. I want to lead this people to be those who do the way of the Lord, who follow the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. It's Egypt and Sinai, right? It is God's promise and God's blessing and also instruction on God's way, what God intends for the people to be and to become. Now there's more in this chapter about what it means in, for Abraham who then has it out with God because God says what he's going to do in, uh, in Sodom and, and Abraham has this negotiation with him about whether what he intends to do is really right and just. So Abraham employs the very words that God has said in his relationship with God. He's like, God, you, you say you're all about righteousness, but you intend to sweep away so you is, intend to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And then he says, "What God, you're, you're calling me to be a people of justice, but should not the great judge of the world be more just than to kill the innocent along with the wicked? So Abraham, beginning to own this identity of himself, becoming a person who is an advocate for justice and righteousness even before God. 
even with God, in dialogue, in relationship with God. The Exodus story is about their deliverance, but it is also an important pathway so that they can discover what it means to be the people who follow the way of the Lord. This thing that Abraham was being charged with, the Exodus begins to bring about. And there are lots of ways that this is articulated in the, in the story of Israel, but I want to pay attention to two key words that become the, part of the way that Israel reflects on this. And they're the words aliens, okay? Aliens and um, slaves. Now, this story, slaves and aliens, I'm sorry, Hannah, I've had them backwards there. Slaves and aliens. And if we pay attention to the way that God speaks to his people after the Exodus, he has things to say to them about slaves and aliens that he couldn't say before. After the Exodus, God speaks to the people about, uh, about what about this slavery that is so common in the ancient world. And in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 25, can we, I know I'm asking a lot to ask you to turn to Leviticus, but let's look at Leviticus for just a moment. In Leviticus chapter 25, God is speaking to his people about the ways that they're going to practice justice and righteousness. And look in verse 38 and following. I wish we could read this whole chapter, but it's really long. In your own time. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. So you see how this is anchored in the Exodus story. If any who are dependent on you become so impoverished that they sell themselves to you, you shall not make them serve as slaves. They shall remain with you as hired or bound laborers. They shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. And then they and their children with them shall be free from your authority. They shall go back to their own family and return to their ancestral property. For they are my servants, or my slaves, who I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves are sold. This is a radical thing for God to say about Israel. Now, there's going to be some negotiation about the peoples from other lands that will, be, that will be come to Israel as slaves, and they're going to have to work through some of that, okay? And all this isn't resolved, and all of it isn't neat. But here's what Leviticus has to say. The people of Israel are not to be made slaves. They're not to be enslaved. God says, from this experience in Egypt, don't you know, right, that if I have brought them out 
from slavery. I didn't intend for them to be turned right back around and to become your slaves. So the book of Exodus changes the way that they have to think about servants and slaves. There's other places when it talks about the Sabbath, for instance, in the book of Deuteronomy. He talks about uh, what it looks like for them to be a people that will practice having an end of their labor, right? A day where they will no labor to learn. And he says, because you were once slaves in Egypt, and so you're going to practice a day where you don't work, right? And then he says explicitly, including all the people who are servants in your own houses, for you yourselves were once enslaved in Egypt. So be careful how you treat those of who are under you. It's a translation from their experience to their new situation and what it means to be people who practice justice and righteousness. Not just the, go back, the aliens, let's talk about the alien part. And I know that's a weird word in, um, uh, in, in the way that we talk. We don't use this language very much, but um, immigrants. When Israel thinks about the, ex go back one more there, Hannah. When we think about the immigrant experience, Israel always comes back to the way that the Exodus experience changes the way that they treat those who are among them as immigrants in the, in the land of Canaan. In Exodus chapter 23 this time, Exodus chapter 23. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 6 and following, we'll just start there. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor and their lawsuits. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. And then verse 9 says this. I don't think there's, there's nothing like this in the ancient world. And you shall not oppress a resident alien. You shall not oppress an immigrant. You know the heart of an alien. You know the immigrant heart because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like to be an immigrant. So don't be oppressive to those who are immigrants in your land. Again, the experience of Egypt becomes formative for how they're to treat the other people when they are the ones who have the power. The tragic story of history is often that those who were powerless rise to power and they become oppressive themselves. Those who sometimes have suffered injustice go on to be those who will perpetuate injustice. And God says to the people who have been brought out of Egypt, so it shall not be among you. You know what it was like to be an immigrant and you know what it was like to be a slave. So be careful who you become. But now that God has been on your side, when you were on the underneath, 
Be careful how you behave when you are on top. There's more to this. There's more because it's not just the things that happen after the Exodus that frame this. In fact, the story of Genesis, as our encouragers class has been studying this for several months, it's been so great. Um, we've come to, as we've come waded through the last few chapters of the book of Genesis, there are several places where the way that Genesis leads up to the Exodus story. So before the people are enslaved by the Egyptians, long before they're going to be delivered, the book of Genesis frames the story so that they are maybe a little careful about thinking it was just those people who walk like an Egyptian who were in the wrong. Look at Genesis 47 with me. So, a few weeks ago, we talked about the story of Joseph, and that was one of our that was one of our stories that we told. And there was a piece of that that I didn't really lay into yet. I wanted to hold it for today. The first one is that the book of the story of Joseph in Genesis is a prologue to the Exodus story. And if you want to ask the question, what were the people doing in Egypt to start with? Then the book of Genesis tells you that answer. And it is not without irony that the way that the Israelites made their way to the land of their enslavement was that the first Israelite slave Joseph was sold by his brothers. How do we get to Egypt in the first place? Because we enslaved Joseph is the answer. They sent their brother into slavery only to follow a few generations later. But not only that, Here's a piece of Genesis that you may have skipped over when you read it. But in chapter 47, in verse 20, we're in the part of the Joseph story where there has the, the years of, uh, of abundance have passed. Joseph has worked with Pharaoh to collect all this. Joseph has risen in power, right? He is right-hand man in the land of Egypt. In verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh and all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them and the land became Pharaoh's. I know. So they sold their land, all the, all the Egyptian people in their New poverty, sell all the land that they have to Pharaoh. Let's keep reading. As for the people, he made slaves of them. From one end of Egypt to the other. 
Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh, and they lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them, and therefore they didn't sell their land. But, Pharaoh, uh, but Joseph said to the people, oh, that's a nice slip of the tongue. Joseph said to the people, now that I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh, here is the seed for you, sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and for, as food for yourselves, and for your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives, may it please my Lord, we will be slaves to Pharaoh. So generations before Pharaoh enslaved Israel, Joseph enslaved the Egyptians. So the story carries this ominous note because here at this part of the story, those who are on top, read this, no, no ancient Israelite reads Genesis without knowing what comes in the next book. They read the story of Joseph and they know that it'll just be a few generations before they themselves are the enslaved ones. So after the Exodus, God says, remember what it was like when you were on the bottom. But before the Exodus, the book of Genesis says, be careful, you who think you're on the top. <laughs> this story frames what it means for Abraham's descendants who are going to follow the way of the Lord. It shows them a new way of understanding themselves, both at their height and in their lowest moments. For those who would live by grace, need to practice grace too. The way I would think about this is that Israel's suffering and their deliverance, it becomes a map for practicing righteousness and justice. There were some things that Abraham's descendants who would he would charge to follow the way of the Lord by practicing righteousness and justice all the way back there in, in Genesis 18. There were certain things that they couldn't understand about that, about what it meant to be the immigrant or what it meant to be the slave. They couldn't practice righteousness and justice for those people until they had the experience themselves. God is making a new people. A new people who live differently in the world, not just taking advantage of the power they have to enrich themselves, but to be a blessing for the people around them, indeed the people around them who are suffering and who feel lost and enslaved. And so it is with us. So it is for us, when our own suffering has been oppressive and we somehow find our way to an experience of deliverance, those things have to become for us a map, way, a map, a pathway to finding what it means to be people 
who don't just receive grace, but who live grace. Who, in the words of 1 John that so many of us are studying in our classes right now, who don't just receive the love of God as God's children, but who also learn to love our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors with that very same love of God. I love the Exodus story. It's so rich, layer after layer. It'll give as long as you keep reading. It'll speak about what it means to be saved. But it'll also speak about what it means to be changed at the foot of Sinai too. May we be people who in the great deliverance of God become agents of righteousness and justice who seek to follow the way of the Lord and practice God's love wherever we go. Let's pray together. O giver of all good things, in this old and ancient story of deliverance, we hear echoes of the deliverance that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray today for those who already are experiencing that deliverance and those for whom the experience of deliverance is still just a glimmer of hope. We pray that for those of us who know the deliverance of King Jesus, that you would teach us to be his agents to bring deliverance, salvation, and justice, and righteousness in the world wherever we go. May your people be light in the world that still lives under the shadow of some mighty powerful pharaohs. In Jesus we pray. Amen.